Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Hello, folks. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Meredith Angwin. Meredith is a physical chemist and one of the first women to be a project manager at the Electric Power Research Institute. Over her career, she has headed projects to help power plants become more reliable and less polluting. In the past decade, she has studied the grid as a system and taken part in grid oversight and governance. Meredith's previous major book was Campaigning for Clean Air, Strategies for Pro-Nuclear Advocacy. I had the pleasure of reading a pre-release copy of her most recent book, Shorting the Grid, and today we're going to take a deep dive into the grid and its intricacies. But don't worry, we'll keep it simple, and I think we're going to use a lot of driving metaphors. Meredith, welcome to Decouple. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here, Chris. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, Meredith, um, we're going to talk about a variety of issues, but um, climate change is is a, is a really big one. Um, it presents you know enormous physical challenges to humanity in the biosphere, but it also presents enormous technical challenges in terms of how we're going to radically cut our emissions to stave off a three or four degree hotter climate. Um, you know, when most people debate the best strategies to manage a successful energy transition away from fossil fuels, they're talking usually about generation, you know, like are solar panels better than nuclear plants, for instance. Um, but what's often not talked about is the elephant in the room, the grid. Um, and I think that's for a pretty obvious reason, at least to people like me, Um, the grid is really, really complicated. But in reading your book, I think you've done a a great job and I'm excited for you to help us get a grip on the grid so that we can make informed decisions about the best way to move forward. So again, it's it's really wonderful to have you on the show, Meredith. Thank you, thank you. So let's just get started. Um, This is kind of a big question. I've, I've heard the grid described as kind of the preeminent engineering accomplishment of the 20th century, and also as the world's largest machine. Um, Can you help demystify the grid a little bit and and just give us a a brief kind of overview or description of what the grid is for dummies? Well, the grid is uh, everything that's connected together uh, that provides us electricity. So the grid includes... uh, generation, whether it's a power plant or a, um, a rooftop solar. Uh, it includes the wires uh, that are distribution wires in your area. It includes substations. It includes transmission uh, over longer distances, cables under the ocean. Uh, and then it, it can include something. That, most people have heard of all those things. Most people have an idea that's out there. But it also includes the balancing authority, which means the, the, air, the group of people and the uh, command center that keeps the grid in balance. In other, electricity has to be made at the same time as it's used. And you can have some storage. For example, you might have... Um, you might have a pump storage thing, uh, situation where you pump water uphill when you've got a lot of electricity and then you let it down through turbines when you need electricity. In either case, somebody's making the electricity to pump it uphill at the time that that is being used. And when it's coming downhill, somebody's using it. It's the use and the generation, or what the uh, what's usually described, the use is sometimes described as the load. That is, how much load is on the system, and the generation always have to be in balance. And that is the real, real miracle of it. Uh, and that's where it gets uh, very complicated, and people's simplistic ideas of how it should work uh, can run up against some difficult facts. Yeah, I definitely had to look up some terms like uh, I think it was voltage ampere reactives, which I still didn't really get my head around. But, um, you know, this, this the grid is, you know, as you're saying, it's uh, it's really pretty miraculous in terms of how it's able to constantly, um, at least in up until now, <laughs> maybe we're going to talk about how the grid's kind of under threat of becoming less reliable, but up until now really match supply and demand. 
with that in mind, um, why is the grid not sexy anymore? You know, there's a lot of hype about getting off the grid, you know, setting up your own solar array and getting yourself some Tesla wall batteries. Why do you think that is? I, I've never quite understood it. There's a kind of um, <clears throat> longing for simpler times. And I, I totally understand that. I mean, uh, I have a, an I, iPhone. I, I use it. But, you know, when I see my kids uh, or my using their iPhones, I think, you don't use it at all, Meredith. <laughs> you have no clue. I mean, and, and I think that a lot of us sort of want it to be simpler. You know, we want it to be, oh, we didn't, we talk to people. We don't, <clears throat> we don't text them or we see people. Uh, we, you know, I think that's one of the big things. And then living off the grid sounds so exciting and like you're a pioneer and so forth. Excuse me. <clears throat> but nobody really does live off the grid. You, well, some people may. But what I'm trying to say is, let's say you've got someone and they live off the grid. They they have a um, they have a solar panel, and then when the solar panel isn't working, they have batteries. And then when the battery isn't working, they have a um, a generator, and they're not connected to electricity at all. And you'd say this person lives off the grid. How long do you think that generator is going to run if there's no power down at the gas station? To, to fill the refills. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that I, I learned about reading your book and looking into this recently is that gas stations need electricity to, to pump that, that fuel out the hose. Yes, and, and, and you see, so in a way, if you have all that, you might be living off the grid, but you might also find yourself really without power if you can't, if you can't fill the g generator because... It'd be pretty hard. It's not impossible. It's doable, okay? But it's very, very expensive and awkward to have enough solar and enough batteries to keep a household running. And I've known, you know, households that, that run this way, and, and, and sometimes they also run with, you know, we go down to the laundromat to do our laundry sort of things, you know, mm -hmm. because they don't want to use all that power. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well. You know, there's definitely kind of a, a small as beautiful romanticism in much of the environmental movement and a real sort of shying away from large scale centralized projects. But, you know, economies of scale do seem to sort of come into the equation here. And, you know, if everyone's got a battery system and a solar panel, then, you know, you're starting to really use resources inefficiently. And, you know, the mining footprint and even the sort of life cycle CO2 emissions footprint you know, seem to really go up if we're kind of being inefficient in that way. There's, you know, there's this concept I, I was thinking about a while ago. There's, um, you know, in, in Maoist China, there was the, the so-called Great Leap Forward. Oh, and yes. part, part of it really involved, you know, we're going to industrialize rapidly and we're going to put a, you know, a, a steel smelter in everybody's backyard. And of course, it was a total disaster. But that does seem to sort of be what is romanticized these days. Well, I think we all feel so very vulnerable to all these big institutions and centralized power plants and 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 uh, hospitals with all their gear and stuff that there's this idea that, um, you know, that it was better when the doctor really cared about you and he came to your house and he 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 took care of you there. Well, yeah, but he didn't have very many ways to take care of you you know i mean if you really want to be diagnosed with some things you better be at a hospital where they've got some x-ray equipment uh, i i guess that's the kind of thing that we don't like to acknowledge because it makes us feel very vulnerable to things we can't control to people we can't control institutions we can't control so so getting back to just trying to understand some basics in the grid um one of, one of the key concepts, I think, is the idea about baseload. And it, it seems to be the subject of some fierce debate between renewables advocates who say we don't need baseload and um, folks like pro-nuclear advocates who say it's essential. Um, what is baseload? How should we understand it? You know, what are some sources of, of baseload electricity? Well, baseload is the baseload. In other words, 
electricity goes up and down all day, uh, all night. Uh, there's a lot more electricity in use at two in the afternoon than at two in the morning. So if you look at a mild evening and you look at uh, two in the morning when there's not much electricity in use, that's the base load. That's the, if it, you can imagine it as a steady amount that's always there. Um, and uh, for, for example, uh, let me give you a different example. Let's say there's a, there's a river and it flows along. And then sometimes there's not much water in it and it flows sort of slowly. And sometimes there's a lot of water in it and it flows faster. Well, the however fast it flows when there's not much water in it, that's the base load. That's what's always going on. And uh, people have... Uh, it, with electricity, if you begin looking at the shapes of the, you remember demand is called load. So base load is basic demand, 24-hour demand. What is needed 24 hours a day? And so if you look at load shapes, they have a lot of base load. I was looking at a bunch of them, and basically around here, other places, um, at least like 50% of our electricity is this base load, this demand that is always there. And you say, 50%, I'm sure we use a lot more in the middle of the day. Yeah, but the base load is still there in the middle of the day, and it's also there all night. So that's why you get such a high percentage of it. Now, a lot of renewable advocates uh and I used to work in renewables, and I think renewables are very good for what they are good for, and they are good for things. A lot of renewable advocates are very distressed at the idea of baseload. They'll say things like, that's your grandfather's grid. We don't need baseload anymore. Well, there's still that amount of demand that goes on 24-7. What do you mean you don't need it? If, you did, if we didn't use it, it would go away. If you think we don't need it, I presume you don't care if your thermostat works in the middle of the night. I mean, I just, or if the hospital has lights, or right. <laughs> if the ventilators are running in the intensive care unit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've got to you got to realize that that's low, that that is being used because it's essential, not because people like to be up at two in the morning to use baseload. So. The problem, the, the way the grid used to be organized and the way most things are organized is that you built some machines to take care of some kinds of problems and you built other machines for other kinds of problems. So, for example, if you are talking about transportation, you build a big truck to haul goods around. And it's a very, you know, it's it, it, it goes really well when it goes steadily. They don't have a lot of acceleration. They don't stop on a dime. But why do we use them? We use them because they are designed for their purpose. They are designed to carry large loads, long distances. And base loads like that, too. It's designed to keep that load, to keep that load met all the time and uh but the trouble is that a lot of renewables that go on and off when they want to go on and off and so if you have for example um uh, a wind turbine that and the wind springs up at two in the morning and the wind turbine wants to get on to the grid and there's reasons it wants to get onto the grid that are very financial reasons i'll talk to that in a minute so it wants to get onto the grid because it's finally got some wind. I mean, around here, the wind is much more at night than daytime. We've got a, a night, but wind thing. Other areas in the Great Plains, it's steadier during the day. So I, I, I don't want to say the wind is never steady, but it isn't particularly steady. So when it gets wants to get on the grid, it goes on the grid. And what if you've got a baseload plant going then? So you say, well, the baseload has to back off. Well, it's just sort of like stopping a semi. You're going to, it's going to take it a while to back off. Meanwhile, the wind may have run up in speed and run down in speed. 
so the, the, the thing is, oh, those basal plants are not flexible for today's grid. So what you have to do is you have to get a gas turbine in there because it's really fast. It reacts fast. And so when it, it runs all the time and then when the wind springs up, it can go down quickly. And the wind dies down, it can come up quickly. But gas turbines were not traditionally used for baseload. For good reasons, they're 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 a little fussier. They they you know it's sort of like using a fleet of sports cars to carry your goods across the country. Yeah, they're flexible, real flexible. They've got great acceleration, great stopping, fun to drive, but they're still not not going to be a semi. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When we talk about renewables, I mean, it's there's, I think, some criticism of just what a big basket it is to contain, you know, a variety of different sources that have really different characteristics, you know, like biomass, garbage incineration, hydroelectricity, wind and solar, they're all sort of lumped together in the category of renewables and renewables tend to have a bit of a halo kind of floating around above them. Um, do you think there's a more useful way to, to classify you know, wind and solar versus biomass to help us understand the the features they have better and the limits and advantages that each one has? Well, the first thing we have to think about, and I really feel this, this is important to think about, is that renewable is a marketing term. It is not actually about a kind of energy. So you can have a biomass plant that, um, is basically a heat engine, just like a coal plant, except that it burns wood. You have refuse plants, okay? They're all considered renewable. Why are they considered renewable? I mean, are we making so much refuse that it's a renewable resource? I, I, the reason is it's a marketing term, and it's also a term that is used for uh, who gets the subsidies? A renewable. If you get if you get the stamp of approval, you're a renewable. Then there are in many places many kinds of subsidies, so you you can make money by being subsidized because you're renewable. Uh, one of the things that I about this is that, for example, a waste to energy plant will be called renewable, and meanwhile a big hydro plant will not be called renewable. Why not? I mean, it is it is renewable. The, the clouds drift in, the, the pond behind the hydro uh, plant gets filled. That's all. There's no fuel involved. There's no, uh, the fuel is, is provided by mother nature, but big hydro plants are not counted as renewable with the odd, understanding that if you did count them, then some of the other renewables wouldn't get on the grid. And we prefer those renewables for for different reasons. My feeling is that we should talk about plants as being low emissions or regular emissions or not. I don't know how to say it. I don't want to say high emissions because that's kind of I used to work on pollution control, and a lot of people have. So I don't like the idea that people that uh, you know uh, a well-operated biomass plant with a you know a, a, a good a good uh, electrostatic precipitator that's making almost no uh, um, particulate is a high emissions plant. But it's an emissions plant in a way that neither a wind turbine nor a nuclear plant, nor a hydro plant is making emissions. I think that's a more useful way to, to put it. But as I say, different groups have successfully gotten themselves the stamp of approval where uh, we're renewable and other groups have been pushed out of being a renewable. When you talk about sort of classifying things by emissions, and I think in this case, we'll talk sort of about CO2 emissions rather than touching on air pollution at the moment anyway. Um, You know, the IPCC has, I think, some pretty authoritative life cycle emissions estimates for the various sources. And at the bottom of the pack, meaning the lowest emission sources, you have wind and nuclear, which is about 
12 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. Um, solar is about four times that. Um, natural gas is very high, 500, and coal is kind of at the top of the list at 800 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. But I think, you know, that's just looking at the, ge- the generation source uh, itself. And I think it's an interesting question, you know, what happens to the life cycle emissions of, say, wind or solar when you have to factor in the need for natural gas backup or batteries? Well, they're very careful not to uh, not to factor those in when talking about <laughs> their emissions, and 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 basically that is one of the uh, one of the things that is kind of um, annoying uh, because if even even a gas fired plant, if it runs steadily, will have lower emissions than well, it won't have lower emissions. Lower emissions overall than if it's if you it's uh, you know suddenly using a lot of gas and then none you know oh gosh I got to ramp up because the winter wind just died down oh okay now I got to lower because the wind came back that kind of thing is like stop and go driving and and if you think about the EPA estimates with driving they say you get this much mileage on a highway where you're going along steadily and this much mileage, much lower mileage in the city where you're being stop and go. And so uh, the emissions um, from different low emission, uh, relatively low emission things like a gas turbine will be higher than you'd like them to be when it's ramping up and down and, and sideways trying to keep up with uh, the wind turbines and 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 the um, the solar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. I the the thing. What I would like to see. I mean, I'll be really honest about what I'd like to see on a grid. I would like to see baseload, which is a real thing, being done by nuclear plants, which have very low emissions, or hydro. If you're in an area that has hydro, that's the way you get countries and regions with low emissions. That's the way France and Ontario and Sweden uh, have low emissions because of uh, hydro and or nuclear. Then for load following, you might want a mixture of solar plus gas, solar plus hydro. Uh, You know, like I say, there are places for renewables and they should be used for that. But this idea that they can do everything is is just like saying, oh, yes, of course. Um, all we need is those flexible little sports cars. We, we like them. And, 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 and the, the trucks, we, we don't need those anymore. I guess, except that renewables don't really have a, a gas pedal you can push on. They're sort of um, sports cars with, with sails on the top or something. No, uh, they, they don't. I mean, they come on and they leave when they want to. And that is, uh, that is difficult because, I mean, the grid operators, they are used to the idea that people come on and leave when they want to. They, they use power when they want to, that people get up in the morning and turn the lights on, that they make dinner around six o'clock. They don't make dinner at two in the morning because two in the morning uh, is less demand on the grid. So of course, that's when you make dinner. I mean, people live their lives with the grid in support of their lives. And so the idea that the dispatchers, the balancing authorities always have is we, we, tell the plants to come online so people can live their lives nicely. Uh, If the plants come online when they want to, then you've got to have a lot of backup or you've got to have the idea that people have to be trained to do things at times that perhaps they don't want to do them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, a way that I was trying to wrap my head around this is, you know, with baseload power, like, like nuclear, your challenge is, you know, how do you build mountains on top of that that plateau in terms of, you know, rising to the challenge of meeting increased demand at certain times of day? But with renewables, it's sort of, you know, how do you fill in all those valleys um, so that you can actually fulfill the baseload function and, and provide enough electricity 24-7? 
Um, and then I guess you also need to add those mountains on and occasionally the weather will, will, um, agree with you and, and give you that boost of energy when you, when you need it to meet an increased demand. But, you know, the majority of the time you need to fill in those, those valleys and in existing, I know there's a lot of sort of ideas about what could happen with renewables, but certainly in existing models, like, you know, where there's high renewables penetration in California and Germany, for instance, the, uh, you know, what's even branded by the fossil fuel companies as the natural partner for renewables is, is natural gas. Um, like how much, how much gas infrastructure is needed to back up, you know, a, a certain amount of renewables? Is there kind of a ratio there? Well, there's been, uh, in, in my upcoming book, uh, Shorting the Grid, I did a little research on it. Well, I did a fair amount of research on it. Uh, there's one, uh, large study, uh, international study, um, I think it was by the National Bureau of Economic... Oh, I should have it in front of me. My apologies. Anyway, basically, if you have one megawatt installed of renewables, you need 1.1 megawatt of fast-acting either natural gas or um, dispatchable uh, hydro uh, to, to, uh, to back that up. So you need more of the... Uh, backup than you need renewables. So they, they did this study over um, many, uh, many, uh, many countries, many years, and, and so forth. And, and, and similarly, if you go to um, like a, a small uh, rural cooperative, we, I had a, a, the CEO of a small rural cooperative talking to my class uh, on the grid at one point, and she said, well, you know, uh, I haven't. I have a lot of solar on my system yet, but I haven't been able to take the other other plants off the system. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like now that I have solar, I don't need them. She, they, I need. I don't use them. Maybe perhaps as much, but I need them there. Right. Right. In in, in terms of the the role then that they they have, it seems like you know if you have to build this backup fossil infrastructure, okay, but perhaps renewables can sort of eat into the amount of fuel that would be burned if you just had that that fossil fuel infrastructure there in the first place. So the idea of renewables as, as kind of fuel sparing to a fossil system, they, they certainly can't replace and get rid and, and get rid of fossil and, and achieve deep decarbonization, but they can uh, perhaps spare fuel. But in your book, you actually share a couple of examples where um, you know, increasing penetration of natural gas in a few um, jurisdictions actually led to increased emissions or increased air pollution. Um, can you can you tell us about those those instances? Well, the, the, one of them was uh, that in Ireland, uh, which has both wind and um, and natural gas, uh, some years uh, the they knew what they had before they had the natural gas, they knew what the emissions were. And some years with the wind on it, they actually had more emissions from the natural gas because the natural gas was ramping up and down so much. Other years, the wind spared emissions from the natural gas. So it's not a simple sort of straightforward like, oh yeah, you know, that will spare. That that assumes that, there, that the ramp, Ramping the rapid ramping doesn't take more uh, um, more natural gas than steady operation, and and rapid ramping does take more natural gas than steady operation. And then there was another uh, situation um, where I think it was at Duke Power. I guess I should look up on my own book what was the actual. <laughs> <laughs> I just read your book. It was Duke. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I was just like, oh, great. Now you've said it's Duke and it's probably something else. But basically, they, they found that they, uh, because they were fo trying to uh, follow um, uh, solar uh, or wind, maybe solar and wind, they were getting more nitrogen oxide emissions from their natural gas units. Uh, and the reason they were, and, and, and when I read that, I said, well, of course they were, because I worked on nitrogen oxide pollution control. And uh, most of the ways you do nitrogen oxide pollution control with a gas turbine is you change the... Um, 
the ratios and the temperatures and you manipulate what's going on within the turbine because the way you get nitrogen oxide pollution is if you have very high temperatures for combustion, which is a good thing because it's more efficient combustion, but then the nitrogen in the air unites with the oxygen in the air. It has almost nothing to do with the fuel itself. It's just the temperature of the air. You're causing a reaction. You're causing nitrogen to react, the nitrogen that's always in the air to react with the oxygen that's always in the air. So the way you try to manipulate that is you try to keep the area which has got the highest temperature, not also to have the highest oxygen. So it's a, a del or, or sometimes you shoot steam into the turbine to lower the temperature at certain areas. So it's a very delicate kind of uh, way to, to prevent um, nitrogen oxide pollution forming. And if your turbine's ramping up and down all the time, you're not going to do as good a job of it. It can't. You know, and so basically, I when I read that article and they said, oh, you know, we're getting more nitrogen oxide pollution now, I thought, of course, I, I could have predicted that. <laughs> so, so getting on to um, another area of your book, which I think is, you know, one of your major concerns for writing it is we have this sort of angelic miracle of the grid, as you call it. Um, and I think you're concerned with the degree to which it's becoming very vulnerable to things like blackouts. Um, you know, blackouts are pretty rare in North America. Um, there was, I think, a big one in Toronto in 2003 that I remember vaguely. Um, and, you know, it was in August. It wasn't too hot of a, of a season. So I don't think that, you know, it wasn't during a heat wave. There wasn't a lot of people running into heat exhaustion or heat stroke, thankfully. But you know, you talk a lot about New England winters. Um, you know, what, what does a blackout mean um, for New Englanders, you know, say during a polar vortex cold snap that, you know, lasts a, a week where you live? Well, I, I don't I don't mean to be alarmist about it, but it could be it could be not good at all. I mean, first of all, one of the things that is in New England um, that a lot of houses are old and not very well insulated uh, and uh, and people have a uh, little uh, space heaters. I mean, they have little electric space heaters. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, so you might keep the whole house pretty cool, but you have a little electric space heater because otherwise the bathroom is going to be just awful, uh, awfully cold. Or, or maybe uh, you don't use the space heater at all, and then when there's a very windy, uh, cold night, uh, then you're using it. Um, the in in New England, uh, one of the highest demand, one of the highest risk times is a cold night. Uh, on at about seven p.m., people are making dinner. They're trying to get a uh, Sunday night. They're trying to get ready for the next week. That that is that is not a time you want the power to go out for a, a couple hours, um, and. Uh, the grid is vulnerable because um, the the, the uh, natural gas we haven't built very many natural gas lines anywhere in the country for many years, and when people build them, you know, people uh, other people object to them. You know, we're locking in fossil fuel infrastructure and so forth. So the net result is there's only a certain amount of natural gas that can be delivered at a time. And so when there's a real spike in demand, the power plants can't get the natural gas because the same pipelines carry natural gas to houses as to power plants. And the power plants are second in line. The houses are first, the power plants are second. So power plants get their natural gas shut off. So now if, if you have a situation where you have wind and solar, which go on and off when they want to, and natural gas, which is delivered just in time, you have a situation where two things can collide to just take the grid offline for a while so that they have to take 
the, the balancing authority looks at it and says, boy, you know, the whole grid could go down. I can't let that happen. We're going to have to have rolling blackouts. Rolling blackouts are a way to keep the whole grid from collapsing. You take one part off, you lower the load, and then you you let the, the that part have electricity again, and you move it to a different part. You take that part off the grid, lower the load. Then an hour, an hour goes by, you let that part have electricity again. But rolling blackouts in the middle of, of winter are, are just not... Uh, a, a very pleasant thing uh, to contemplate. I mean, what's what's interesting, I think, is that you know the same people that are so opposed to natural gas pipelines, and you know, I'm sympathetic to them. I'm not a huge fan of of fracking and and fossil fuel infrastructure. Obviously, someone who's very concerned with the climate. Um, these same folks are often the people who are really kind of pushing renewables. I think without understanding the relationship between natural gas and renewables, and it's often. At- Absolutely and often, true. yeah, and often the same people that are helping to shut down, um, you know, the the baseload sources like coal and, and nuclear, um, which I think are two very different uh, technologies, obviously. But those are sort of baseload technologies where you can stockpile fuel at the plant. So it seems like you're setting up a real, you're knocking out all the the legs on your stool, really, if you're if you're just depending on natural gas and renewables to. That's right. To, you are. You're, you're knocking out the legs where you have storage and you have storage with nuclear and with coal. I mean, I'm not a fan of coal either, but I'm just saying that they have storage on site. You don't have storage on site with a wind turbine. You don't have storage on site with a solar array and you don't have storage on site with a um with a, a gas pipeline. And I mean, people work around it. For example, in, in New England, uh, there was a program called the Winter Reliability Project, or Winter Reliability Program, I believe, which basically paid for gas-fired plants to store oil on site so that when they couldn't get gas, these plants are what's called dual fired. They can use oil if they can't get gas and they would have oil on site to use. So people can work around it. But then uh, it's, then the, the trouble is that you have to pay them to store the oil. They don't want to just go out there and buy oil in case it might be necessary. You see, because they're competing with each other. So if I go and buy oil for my plant and someone doesn't buy oil for that their plant, well, I might be doing a great, a great service, but uh, I'm going to also go out of business by spending money that the other guy isn't spending, which is why the... Uh, the uh, grid operator was actually paying for the plants to have oil. I mean, if you'll keep oil, we'll pay you for the oil. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and then from what I understand, um, at a nuclear plant, you can store sort of a year and a half worth oh, yeah. of fuel because uranium's yeah. so dense, I guess. Yeah, it, it, you can store fuel for a year and a half. That's a wonderful thing about nuclear plants. I mean, that's a wonderful thing about uh nuclear ships too if you think about it i mean you you get these ships that go out to uh to sea for you know months and months and months they don't have to refuel um if you if you uh watch uh, footage from uh world war ii or anything like that you see these uh these big oil ships refueling out in the ocean you know it's just um, uh, you know the both ships are jumping up and down i mean Anyway, what I'm trying to say is, yes, it's wonderful to have fuel on site. Absolutely a, a great thing. So we, we've been talking about this very vulnerable grid that's kind of coming into existence that's so natural gas and, um, and renewables based. Obviously, renewables advocates, um, I mean, I think probably 10 or 15 years ago, um, some of the groups I'm aware of actually got a lot of funding from natural gas Um uh, companies and and often advocated for natural gas as kind of a cleaner alternative. But as as climate change has become you know an increasing concern, um, I think even those groups um, have have said, okay, no, 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 natural gas is not something we want to be associated with. Um, you talk in your book about you know I guess the existing setups and then sort of the fantasy setups and. 
part of that um, that section in your book, it talks about you know this word um, that we use about what could be done, um, and you want us to be very careful of the word "could" in this context. Um, could you could you explain that a little bit for us? Yes, absolutely. Uh, one of the first things that I noticed about the word "could" is that there were all these people uh, going around when they wanted to shut down Vermont Yankee, explaining that we could replace that nuclear plant with uh, renewables. We could. Well, you know, it's hard to get renewables cited. They're not reliable. And when you get right down to it, Vermont Yankee was replaced pretty much kilowatt hour per kilowatt hour with natural gas. I mean, the grid use of natural gas went up as soon as Vermont Yankee was closed. It doesn't matter that somebody had done a theoretical study that we could replace it with, with renewables. That isn't what happened. I One of the things I, I think about is could. What does could mean? I live near the uh, Connecticut River. I live on the Vermont side. The other side of the river is the New Hampshire side. And um, there are a lot more, for various reasons, there are a lot more uh, uh, stores on the New Hampshire side because they don't have sales tax. (laughs) So uh, one goes across the river to do some shopping. Well, they could build a bridge every two miles, right? And I wouldn't have to drive so far to get to New Hampshire. But they don't. Is it because we don't have bridge technology? Is it because we don't have the will to do it? No, it's because it would be very, very wasteful and very difficult. And I mean, you just have to drive away to get to the bridge, get get used to it. Similarly, you can't sit around and say, we could replace with renewables. What's going to happen is it's going to be replaced with natural gas. I mean, I, th- I think it's interesting because, you know, when we start to see, um, you know, areas with very high penetrations of renewables um, that are not delivering on their promises of, of deep decarbonization or where electricity costs are going up or where, like in California, they're heading into, you know, frequent blackouts and insufficient supply. There's, you know, some folks just kind of double down. And it reminds me of that Einstein quote of, you know, the definition of insanity being, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And, you know, I think there's a lot of folks um, in the renewables camp who just say, well, it's political. People just aren't trying hard enough. You know, yes, we can. And we could, we could, we could. Um, On that topic, you know, one of the um, potential solutions for intermittency that's proposed is, you know, grid scale batteries. Um, In your book, you, you talk about a calculation that, um, uh, someone you know did regarding uh, trying to back Rupert up. Mahaltra. He, he yeah. was in the energy group at his PhD in, in, and he was a, he was the head, I believe, of the energy group at Stanford Research Institute, which is now called SRI. And anyway, what, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So he was talking about, you know, the amount of lithium you'd need to back up, I believe, a one gigawatt um, plant. Do, do you remember? Any yes, I remember that. that. I think it was approximately the world supply of lithium for one year would be enough to back up one gigawatt uh, plant for approximately, what, eight hours, something like that, five hours? It certainly wasn't for 24 hours. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really interesting because, you know, like, like, like when I started reading your book and really starting to learn about the grid, there's just so much complexity there. And I think that's natural. Like when you, and maybe it's the Dunning-Kruger curve, when you first like start investigating something, you feel like you're getting expertise pretty quickly. But, you know, just like in medicine as well, the deeper you dive in, the more you know that you don't know. And I guess that's kind of um, the, you know, many Greek uh, philosophies talk about that as sort of being the wisdom that you arrive at. But when people talk about um, balancing intermittency and haven't really thought it through, I think they're often just thinking about it on a kind of moment to moment basis or maybe, you know, on a day to day basis. But, um, you know, one of the concerns, I think, is is balancing intermittency on a, on a seasonal basis, because I think, as you were saying, um, you know, particularly, well, obviously, the, the sun doesn't shine when it's dark outside or during prolonged uh you know, spells of bad weather, but the wind also is is very sort of seasonal. Yeah, the wind tends to blow more at the times when the seasons are changing. You know, March winds, 
famous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, basically, you could you could also say uh, uh, um, September uh, October winds. I mean, basically at the equinoxes, and it tends to blow less in the middle of the uh, uh, winter and in the middle of the summer. And then if you think about solar, I don't know any situation where you could uh, store up enough energy at the summer solstice. Uh, so that you could use it at the winter solstice. Where, where's your battery uh, that, that you're going to charge up on the summer solstice and you're going to use it at the winter solstice? It's, it's just it's seasonal. People don't realize it. They say, oh, well, we've got intermittency solved. Well, no, we don't. I, I find it's interesting sort of how when you talk about renewables, um, it's very, it's very difficult to say, you know, they just won't work in this situation. Like there's such a benefit of the doubt that's given around, well, you know, the technology doesn't currently exist or we can't build big enough batteries yet. Um, but you know, in terms of things where there seems to be real sort of physical limitations, you know, like the Moore's law, right. Where they, they keep saying, well, you know, just look at how much cheaper solar panels are getting. It's going to keep moving that way it's going to follow Moore's law which is something that's very specific to to microchips and electronics i just i just think it's it has to do i think with the lack of really any mainstream critical analysis of renewables and i think that's why my guest last week was was so impressive to me um gatri vidyanathan when her talk about um the solar village in india it's just you know and, and i and i also really appreciate what you've done with this book in, in terms of having i guess the courage to to actually go out on a limb and, and point out some of these issues and, and provide a you know well-reasoned critical analysis. Well, thank you. I, I wanted especially to put it in terms of how everything works on the grid because people don't don't understand that at all. I mean, you know, if I say nuclear plant, you know what I mean. If I say solar plant, you know what I mean. If I say, well, the balancing authority is having a lot of problems because some of these new places don't put um, uh, vote ampere reactives on the grid and, 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 and it can lead to problems. You go like, what's the balancing authority and what's a volt ampere reactor? Uh, basically, some of the renewables don't make the, the, that VARs, which are important for the grid, in the same way that more traditional plants do. So, uh, and and so that makes the uh, grid operator's job somewhat harder. But but the thing is, nobody nobody has even heard of that. You know, that's one of the the problems. I, what I want is, you know, if people read the book and they say, "No, she's wrong. The, the the renewables can do it." Whatever. I want them to look at the grid and at least begin having a conversation about how the grid works. You know, because it right now nobody nobody has that conversation everybody has this idea that they're going to go off grid and it's going to be great or that the intermittency problem has been solved we can use all renewables we don't have to use natural gas anymore and it just it just doesn't happen to be true so another one of the sort of things we you know quote unquote could do when talking about the grid is you know, another solution that's that's you know suggested for um, solving intermittency is you know these continent span spanning transmission lines, high voltage DC lines, I guess. Um, you know, and you look at I guess like how much opposition there is to to putting up a transmission line anywhere, um, and the kind of nimbyism that goes into it, and it just seems. You know, and also just the materials, right? Like when you, we were talking earlier about, you know, when you add on these these bits of infrastructure, like grids, grids, uh, size batteries, or these massive, you know, transmission towers, and the amount of copper that needs to be mined. There was a, there was a recent article um, in Mining.com which was sort of celebrating and saying we really need to get on board with uh, the Green New Deal because it's really, really good for mining. Yes, it is. Yeah. It is indeed. Um... Well, I would I would say that it's almost always going to be easier in America, at least, to build a power plant than to build a new transmission line. I mean, we have had uh, uh, Hydro Quebec really wants to sell more electricity down to the Boston area, and this has been going on. Uh, the attempts to build a new transmission line to do that 
have been going on. I've been out here for about 16 years. I think they've been going on for at least 16 years. This transmission line is, 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 uh, is, is planned, but it can't get its permits because it's got to go through all these jurisdictions. And, you know, it only takes one no. <laughs> uh, so I tend to think that building, uh, we are kind of in a place where the best we can plan to do is replace existing power plants with better power plants and upgrade the transmission lines that are already built, that already have the clearances around them and so forth. I think the just watching, trying to get a tra some a transmission line from Quebec to Boston, just watching that saga has convinced me that these that anybody who says that, oh, we're just going to build this new giant grid across the United States and that because it's, you know, because the, the sun is shining in the Southwest and we want that electricity because there's a, 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 a you know, a, a, a tremendous storm going on in, in, in New England. And no, it's, it isn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. It's certainly not working out so well in Germany, I think, where most of their wind resources are on the uh, North Sea and they need to build, you know, many, many thousands of kilometers of transmission lines to move that juice down to the industrial south. And I, I've heard that they've built only a tiny, tiny fraction. So No, no I know. They have only a tiny fraction. The thing is, is if you need to have so many different groups and so many different areas say yes to something, you might as well except that the most probable answer is going to be no and look at a different way to accomplish the same goal. And yeah, in, sounds, in this case, the like goal would be low emissions, in my opinion, and, the, and, and, and uh, uh, nuclear power plants in the place where their coal plants are would give them low emissions, and, and, and the coal plants already have all the infrastructure around to take the, the uh, energy to the people. Right, right. I want to shift gears a little bit because um, I think an important part of your book has to do with, um, you know, I, I guess sort of values and, and social justice in terms of, um, you know, the grid does provide these services to everybody, but um, there's ways in which it's being manipulated more recently that, that shift the burden, I think, from wealthier people to poorer people. And, and yes. one of the sections you talk about is this concept of consumers versus prosumers. And I was just wondering if you could sort of flesh out to our listeners what, what this concept is. Well, there's a new concept that the new grid is going to be not like the old grid where uh, Joe owns a power plant and I consume the power. I'm good. In that case, I'm a consumer. A big, big company owns the power plant. Meredith's a consumer. Instead, it's going to be that uh, I'm going to be the producer and the consumer. That is the prosumer. So I'll have a, I'll have a, a, a big solar array on my roof. And I will buy from the power grid at night. And I will, um, I will, uh, uh, sell to the power grid uh, at the uh, at the daytime, so I will have I will both be a provider and a paid provider and a consumer who pays. And the thing is that 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 is that's actually going to look like net metering. I explain in the book why, although there are lots of different possible ways that uh, a small um, uh, power plant can be built near a house. You could have a you could have a wind turbine. You could have a small wind turbine. Well, they're fairly high to maintenance, and uh, you know people don't actually like them near the houses because they tend to make flickers and so forth and so on. Okay, so much for the wind turbine. Uh, then then you could have a, a methane digester. Well, they have them on dairy farms. That's great. It is absolutely right. Uh, methane digesters. Uh, can make power, and they do make power, but we all don't own dairy farms. We don't all have a methane pit under the under the uh, under the barn. Uh, some of us don't. And then um, the, the the you know they they keep talking about how we're all going to be back and forth with the grid, and I'm like, no, it's just going to look like net metering. And the thing about net metering is, 
that the person who provides the power is you know, they say well you're you on your so when your solar panel is making power your electricity bill, meter will run backwards so in if if you make 1 kilowatt hour of power you won't you'll be paid the equivalent of one kilowatt hour of payment, and you will you will not you will not have to pay it. So you're going to be paid the retail price for power. That is, if I pay six uh, fifteen cents an hour, uh, kilowatt hour to my local power company now, I'll get sixteen cents a kilowatt hour from my uh, uh, solar panel. Actually, it's worse than that. In many places they have an adder. I'll get eighteen cents per kilowatt hour, an extra two cents. Uh, because I'm such a good person and I'm making uh, renewable power. Well, fine. But meanwhile, the electricity company not only has to buy power, which it buys from me and it buys from the uh, nuclear plant and it buys from Hydro-Quebec, and it's paying me 18 cents. It's paying the nuclear plant in Hydro-Quebec between 2 and 8 cents. Then That's a good deal. <laughs> it's a good deal for me. If yeah, afford, if they can afford the solar for array, power yeah. that they could get for between two and eight cents. Yeah, and at any rate, so meanwhile, the electricity company also has to do other things. It has to maintain the distribution. When a line goes down in a big storm, it has to send someone out. It has to have a billing section. It has to have a section where, when people are in great financial trouble, it still doesn't shut off the uh, uh, power. It, it 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 says, "Well, we're giving you a three month extension here." It has all these financial obligations from the people maintaining the lines and the substations to the billing people, to the other people that they have uh, working to buy the power uh, from, from, from the grid and make sure that they're getting a good deal from people. And meanwhile, where's it getting the money for that? Remember it's, it, it, it gets 18 cents from, uh, from uh, it gets 16 cents from your average uh, uh, pay, um, customer, but it's paying me 18 cents. Okay. So, so it's a, it sounds like a big wealth transfer, basically. It's a wealth from... transfer. It's a wealth transfer to me. I had a friend at EPRI and he was really, he was really cynical guy. And he said, I love, well, he, he and I had both left EPRI by then. This was the Electric Power Research Institute. But uh, and he said, I love my net metering, Meredith, and you should too. You're paying for it. you you talk about this uh, i think it's an advertisement around this consumer prosumer concept and uh you know the consumer is is imaged or pictured as a kind of sad white male um who's kind of standing in front of a house and he only buys power and then the the prosumer is a cheerful woman of color standing in front of a house covered in solar panels and uh, I think you, you really comment on this, how it's, it's sort of the exact opposite in the real world. Well, it can be, it can be a, a, a woman of color can certainly have a house uh, with solar panels, but the average house with solar panels is a, is a suburban house or a rather nice house because basically even if the, the, uh, there's a, a deal to get the solar panels put in, you know, the, the power company underwrites them and stuff, you got to put the money together to, to get the deal going. I mean, when I was looking at some things here uh, at one point there was um, uh, there was a big kind of outcry in some local papers that efficiency Vermont was asked which is a, a um, an energy efficiency uh, um, uh, it, it's set up by the Vermont government to to promote energy efficiency in Vermont houses so th- one of the things was, the first thing they do is they come out and they give you a blower door test and stuff. Well, apparently you have to pay something toward that blower door test. It's probably underwritten by efficiency for my, but you have to pay something for it. And so there you have it. There are a lot of people like, I can't afford a blower door test. I already got a lot of other bills to be paid. So the thing is, who's going to get 
the blower door tests and who's going to get the underwritten uh, home insulation from Efficiency Vermont? It isn't going to be the people who are really at the edge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a kind of a social injustice game that's that's going on that I, I also find very, very puzzling because it's, you know, a lot of um, progressive people that, you know, support these policies and have these kind of um, small is beautiful, um, you know, so-called sort of like democratic distributive energy, right? The idea that like, well, it's, you know, it's a big evil power company is providing centralized power that's bad. But, you know, if there's kind of a democracy of, of people who can each kind of own their energy infrastructure, then it's kind of controlled that way. But it kind of reminds me of um, old school democracy, like um, the old British system where you had to own land in order to have a vote, because if you don't own your house, you're not going to be getting solar panels on the roof of your apartment, for instance, right? Okay, Meredith, we're, uh, we're getting close to uh, just being over an hour here. So I just want to be mindful of your time. Um, you know, just in closing, you know, there's, there's many jurisdictions and even kind of national plans like um, the Green New Deal that mandate 100% renewable energy by a certain date. Um, and they're doing that kind of without thinking through the grid implications as, as we've been talking about. And I, it really baffles me how policymakers just seem so unaware of their impacts on, on the grid. Um, do you have any kind of theories as to, like it's, it's, it seems like there's so many nonsensical ideas out there, the idea of kind of destabilizing our grid, making it all renewables and gas when there's kind of no... Uh, backup or, or, or fuel supply to stabilize it. Like how, how are these decisions getting made? Is it just ignorance? Is it, you know, is it dirty money? Like what's, how do you explain what seems to be such an illogical um, way of, of, of making up decisions? Well, I think that there's a, 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 uh, a two, two parts to it. The first is that people want to be hopeful about something and they've heard renewables are good, so why not go to 100% renewables? And maybe they're not thinking any further than that. And as soon as you get a lot of people thinking, well, we just have to go to 100% renewables, that's what we have to do, uh, then you can, the politicians uh, will, of course, uh, virtue signal as much as they can. You know, you you know, it's like that movie Spinal Tap. You know, other other amplifiers go from one to ten. Ours goes to eleven. Uh, I don't know if you saw that movie. Oh anyway, yeah, it's so, a classic. It's just, <laughs> but I mean, to some extent, the the politicians will try to outdo themselves in this kind of virtue signaling about how concerned about the environment they are. And of course, it's very cheap to be concerned about the environment is what you do about the environment is you pass a law saying it's going to be 100% renewable. You don't have to put the renewables in, you just pass the law and then it'll happen. And uh, unfortunately, of course, that the uh, the other thing you, you talked about, which is the uh, the uh, very uh, close ties, though not much spoken about, between natural gas and renewables, um, they, they work together very well. Uh, both natural gas backs up renewables and renewables, and, ba- and every time renewables uh, uh, are on the grid and, and those flexible renewables force a baseload plant off, that's more of a market for the natural gas because they're not. It's got to back up those renewables, and uh, that's unfortunately so. It's a mixture of an idealism and rather profound cynicism, and uh, and 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 uh, I don't know. I don't want to call it greed. I'll call it business as usual. We're trying to get rid of the competitors. I think that's a that's a great place to close. So. Meredith, again, I'm very grateful that you've uh, taken the time to write this book. I'm sure it was no small project. Um, I'm going to add the name of the book just at the end, just in case. Uh, it isn't out yet. It should be out next month. It's called Shorting the Grid. And it's by Meredith Angwin. The hidden, Shorting the Grid, the Hidden Fragility of Our Electric Grid. Well, I, I very much, you know, having been privileged to get a sneak peek at it, I, I endorse it thoroughly, and I really hope that people pick it up. And I really hope that... 
you know, in my naivete, I hope that policymakers and, and politicians will also, you know, have a look at it and, and understand some of the implications of of some uh, rather simple-minded decisions that they've been making recently. Thank so you. Again, Meredith, thank th- you very much for inviting me. It was been great chatting with you. Really great fun. Yeah, a real pleasure. Okay, well, uh, I hope you know air pollution is another issue that I'm very passionate about. So maybe we'll get you on in uh, on a future episode to to break that down for us. Okay. Thank you. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.